0: morning 1 Kings 21 beginning in verse 1 God's word says now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria and after this Ahab said to Naboth give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth had said. I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came and said to him, Why is your spirit vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel's wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with the seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city did as Jezebel had Sent word to them. As it was written in letters that she had sent them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. And then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he is gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house. Like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil on the side of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Well, in 1986 in Alabama, an 18-year-old girl was shot and killed in the city dry-cleaning store where she worked. For months, no evidence was found, and the town's anger grew against the sheriff. Finally, the sheriff arrested a black man, Walter McMillan, even though he had little criminal record and there was no physical evidence or even any motive for why Mr. McMillan would have done that. The only evidence against McMillan was the witness of white Ralph Myers. Myers was a known criminal who had been in and out of prison and he was currently suspected in a different murder charge. He testified that McMillan made him get in his car, drive him to the spot, and then sit at the dry cleaners until he came out and shot the grill. You know, that Witness would be suspicious enough, but even worse, there were 12 black people saying he was at his house all day. The accusations were a sham, but his treatment and trial were even worse. Even before trial, he was put on death row, and then the trial was moved from a county with 40% black people to one with 13%. The jury did convict him of murder with a life sentence in prison, but the judge upped the punishment to death by electric chair if all of that wasn't bad enough when the attorney brian stevenson started looking into the case he found the district attorney purposefully withheld evidence showing mcmillan's innocence even more damning the own only witness ralph myers when he confessed the same tape that had his confession if you flipped it over had him strongly protesting saying i never met the guy i'm not going to send him to death and yet all this was known, it took five trials, sorry, five appeals before he could get a retrial and then be set free. And then although all of that has been known since 1993, the sheriff of that town served until he retired in 2018. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine the thoughts that would go through my mind if a loved one who was completely innocent and completely fabricated was put on death row. And then as time and again you appealed to common sense and decency and law, you were rebuffed. And then once you finally got all that done, the very man who did it all was still in charge over you, still in authority for 25 years. Now, most of us have not dealt with such injustice, and yet sadly, many throughout the world and even throughout time deal with horrible injustice. Injustice for them is not that their cappuccino was dark chocolate instead of white. It's not that their children aren't getting the right playing time on the field. It's that family is being killed, property is being seized, and the women are being raped. I don't know if you paid attention with the reading that David read for us earlier in Psalm 58. If you did, you probably were a little shocked when the psalmist said he looked and hoped that God would break out their teeth. Well, that's an odd thing to say. Or he was looking forward to the day when God would trample his robes in their blood. And yet it's injustices like we find in our story this morning, 1 Kings 21, or that we hear of Walter MacMillan that help us understand why people seethe and long and rage for justice to come. This morning, we come across this story of injustice, but in it, we see God's perfect justice. If you follow along the king, you can follow this outline on the back of the bulletin. We see King Ahab, though. This all happens because he's depressed, but then he becomes deadly, but God denounces him, and then Ahab is dejected again. But it all begins in an odd kind of twist. If you've been following along the story we've been hearing of battles, of wars, and then all of a sudden out of the blue we hear, now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard. Well, why are we hearing about this man, and some man an Israelite from Israel has a vineyard? It doesn't seem to follow, and yet it's following the same theme, the theme of Ahab's depression. You may remember from last time, Ahab, by God's power, had defeated Syria twice, and yet the second time he did not... Do it as God commanded, and so God condemned him. And if you look down at 1 Kings 20 verse 43, it says, "And he, Ahab, king of Israel, went to his house vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria." Now you may notice there. We just said he came to Samaria, but Naboth's vineyard is in Jezreel. Most likely, Ahab had two palaces, one in Samaria and one in Jezreel, and this vineyard is an ideal place for Ahab because it's right next to his palace and he wants a new vegetable garden. And so Ahab makes a generous offer. Look, you have a vineyard. I could give you another one. Or if you don't want another vineyard, maybe you want to get out of the vine-growing business, I'll just pay you money for it. And yet, though generous, Naboth strongly refuses the offer. He refuses because it's not just land. It's the inheritance of his father's. You know, how you view something makes all the difference in the world in how you treat it. Take, for example, when you rent something, is that just a rental? Or is that something that actually owns, is owned by someone? If you think the former, then you may say, like people often do, oh, treat it however you want. It's just a rental. Or if the latter, you go, we need to take care of that. Someone owns it. Here's this world that is here, is it just randomly here? Or did God give it to us? If given by God, then you know we should be stewards of it and take care of it. If it's just here, then we can use it however we want. Is what is in a woman's womb a fetus or a baby? If the former, then it's just like any other cells in which a woman should have a right. If it's a baby, then it deserves all the human protections of any other human. Are humans nothing more than highly evolved mammals? Or are we created for God And by God. Well, if the former, then sexual ethics are what every person wants to do. If the latter, then all of life, even our sexual ethics, must be how God instructs us. But the point in all those is how you view something will affect how you relate to it. Naboth lived in a world in which God owns everything. And God gave the various tribes of Israel portions of the land in Palestine. And then within each tribe, the land was further apportioned by clan and then by family. And God commanded through Moses in Numbers 36, 7, The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. God explains this in Leviticus twenty-five, twenty-three: The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine so if the land does need to be sold maybe like for poverty there's rules for this then the land could be sold but it had to be sold first to a close relative and we read of this in the book of Ruth when Naomi's going to get rid of her land and Boaz wants to buy it but he says first I need to go ask a closer relative before I can buy it but even then even if the land was distributed and sold after 50 years what they call the year of jubilee each piece of land was to go back to the original clan and family. Why? Well, to put all this together because God had given this to them. It was not their land. They were stewards of it. And so Naboth rightly viewed himself in a long line of family descendants that God entrusted to steward this very vineyard for his glory in their good. In contrast, Ahab sees a world in which it's all just there. If I want it, I take it. If I don't want it, I don't take it. But there's no one who should determine this except me. He did ever was right in his own eyes. Thus, Ahab, rather than feeling rightly rebuked, oh, you're right, Naboth, that land can't just be given away, he goes home and throws a pity party, depressed, and like a spoiled brat, he lies in bed and refuses to eat. But the issue with Ahab is coveting. And not having contentment. However the solution is not that Ahab doesn't have enough. He already has two palaces. He can give him another vineyard. He could even give him money for it. Nor is the issue that Ahab. Well what you need to do Ahab is just stop desiring. If you have Buddhist friends. Our Buddhist friends believe. What you need to do is stop desiring. And once you've reached the ability to stop desiring. Then you enter enlightenment. Yet the Bible calls us to have desires jesus tells you store up treasures the issue is not having desires but rather learning to have the right ultimate desires and then learning to be content with what god gives us in our life thus hebrews thirteen five says keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he said i will never leave you nor forsake you now, the solution for coveting is to delight in the presence of God and know that he'll never leave us or forsake us. That car you can't wait to get and you're envious of your neighbor, it's eventually going to rust. It's going to get old. The spouse that you think you can't live without will eventually die. The positions of power you crave will eventually have to be given to someone else when you die or retire. Our bodies that we worship fall apart. And that dream vacation, eventually, will have photographs. There will then be old photographs. There will then be a photograph book that someone has to go. Do we keep grandma's photograph books? And it will go away. And yet one thing, the greatest gift, God himself will never leave or forsake you. One day, you will lose every single earthly present. But you'll never lose one present, God's presence in jesus christ and when you can find contentment in that then you can put to death your covetous desires and yet the story has another important implication and that is be very careful how you try to cheer others up you know the kid who cries because last year he got 44 presents and this year he only gets 43 should not then be bought two more presents on the way to the birthday party Because next year, you'll then have to get 47 and 49. You'll never solve your children's unhappiness and lack of possessions by getting them more possessions. And yet, somehow, our culture, our parents have bought the assumption, I always need to keep my kid momentarily happy. And yet, if you live for their momentary happiness, you will ruin their long-term happiness. Of course, it's good to give your children things they enjoy. But it's also good for them to learn, I have enough. To learn the joy of giving and ultimately finding contentment in God. This really leads to an important thing to realize, and that is everyone is seeking happiness. Thus, we shouldn't say, don't always seek to make them happy. Rather, we should say, always seek to make them happy in God. Yes, you may not like your circumstances right now, but you can be happy in God in whatever circumstance. If you've never read John Piper's book, Desiring God, I'd highly encourage you to read it. And in it, he has this phrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So what are you seeking your satisfaction in? What do you do when you don't get it? Like Ahab, do you mope, pout? Throw a pity party? Do you use those emotions to try and manipulate those around you to get what you want? Do you withhold things from family or spouse so you can get your desires? Well, one person, Jezebel, is not the type of woman to get no for an answer. She is deadly serious about getting her way. And we see that next in verses 5 through 16. The story turns deadly. So Queen Jezebel comes in. And she says, why are you on your bed? What's wrong? And then Ahab recounts Naboth's refusal of money or another vineyard for his own. But I wonder if you caught the difference between the way Naboth keeps talking about this vineyard and the way Ahab and Jezebel always talk about the vineyard. If you pay attention throughout, it's exactly the opposite each time. Naboth is clear. I cannot give you the land that is my father's inheritance. But notice in verse 7 what Ahab tells Jezebel. Sorry, at the end of verse 6, Ahab answered, I will not give you, sorry, he's speaking for Naboth. And Naboth answered, I will not give you my vineyard. So it's hard to tell, is Ahab refusing to understand Naboth's religious convictions, why he won't sell? Or is he on caring about his religious convictions that he won't sell? Or is he just manipulating the situation by not mentioning them? Whatever the case, we don't know, but clearly, they don't care. We want the land, he won't give it to us, and we're going to get it. So Jezebel writes these letters and says, look, set up a feast, a fast, and have Naboth at the front, and then bring two worthless men. Now, that should have been the clue. If we have to get two people who are worthless to do what we want, doesn't that show that those elders and we are worthless as well? But nonetheless, get these two worthless people, and then, Charge him with blasphemy, cursing God. Charge him with treason, wanting to get rid of the king. And then by their code, two witnesses in these charges, he can be stoned to death. And then it happens. And if you read 2 Kings 9.26, it appears they even killed Naboth's sons. Now to be clear, the elders of the city were probably right to fear Jezebel. I mean, you can almost hear them saying to their wives, I don't know what to do. We just got this letter, and I really don't want to do it. But Jezebel, she'll just do the same thing to me if I don't do it. And yet, whenever we allow fear of humans, fear of Jezebel, to overshadow fear of God, we've laid the foundations for sinful behavior. Jesus said in Luke 12:2 through 5 nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed in the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. So, Jesus is saying, look, yes, what you're doing, it seems secret, but ultimately it's going to be made known, anyways. So, don't fear Jezebel. Don't fear those who will cure the body. And then he goes on, And after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so yes, the elders of Jezreel should have feared, but they should have feared the Lord more than they feared Jezebel. And yet, they don't, and so Naboth is dead, and Ahab, when he's told by Jezebel that the Naboth is dead, he goes and takes possession of it. You know, the depth of oppression and injustice in this story is shocking. Yet while most of us wouldn't murder to get what we want, don't the same sinful seeds lay in our own hearts too? James 4, 1-2 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So, yes, we may not have the power to be like Jezebel and Ahab to kill. But what does God say through Jesus that murder is? It's the anger that begins with our hearts. You know, our covetous desires, if they're not stopped, they will work themselves out into arguing, fighting, and all kinds of other sins that Jesus says is murder. So let us be appalled when we read stories like this, when we hear of people like Walter McMillan and how he's mistreated. But let's also be appalled at the sinful seeds of, in our own hearts. And yet, sadly, the story is a reminder that we shouldn't be surprised at injustice in this world. And by God's grace, most of us live it, have had our nation's legal system work for us fairly well. As at the opening, we haven't had people taking our land, saying we've committed crimes we haven't committed. And yet, we see in Scripture, and we see throughout time, That is true for many people. It's heartbreaking. It's tragic. It should lead us like the Psalms to cry for God to make it just. And yet, we shouldn't be surprised in this world that such things happen. And yet, there is good news even in the midst of all this, and that is that no one ever gets away with it, for we see that they are denounced. We see that in verses 17 through 24, the third section. They are denounced. Although though they may have thought, look, this is just between us, the elders, and those two worthless people, God knows. And so he sends Elijah to rebuke Ahab. Ahab is to be rebuked at the very moment when he goes to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. And he's to ask him, have you killed and taken possession? And then he's going to declare that the dogs, where they licked up Naboth's blood, so the dogs will lick up Ahab's. If you've been with us going through 1 Kings, you'll know this is a mirror curse to what God gave to Jeroboam, the first king of northern Israel, and then to Baasha, which will be recounted here later in the verses. In both cases, though, they thought we're securing happiness. We're securing the kingdom to do these things against God, and yet they were only securing their own destruction. And so, the dogs will come and eat their bodies in the same way that they caused others to be killed. And yet, unlike Jeroboam and Baasha, Ahab's wife Jezebel also gets a curse. She will die in Jezreel, and the dogs will eat her within the city. And it's a rather amazing truth. Nothing is hidden from God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, The Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The murder of Naboth didn't come to light through investigative reporting. There wasn't a whistleblower. There wasn't a sloppy shredding of the documents that somehow got into the wrong hands. No one shared the secret with the wrong person who came forward with a guilty conscience. Humanly speaking, no one knew. It was the perfect crime. They'll never get caught. That is, except for the fact that God sees, God knows, and he'll act in condemnation or commendation depending on your actions. God's omniscience, his knowing all things can be a great source of concern or comfort it's a concern if you have things that you hope will remain hidden the whispers that you hope stay there and are not proclaimed on the housetop yet it's a comfort if you've had actions done to you that were done in secret words said in private so how do you view god's omniscience does he bring you hope or concern you're one doctor of science and. University Lecture in Chemistry from India found it strongly compelling. Christian speaker Christopher Wright tells of his encounter with this man during a conference in, Indi- in India. There was an, he writes, there was an excited sparkle in his eyes as he came up to me at the end of the session. I was so thrilled when you said you're going to be preaching from the Old Testament, he said, because I became a Christian reading the Old Testament. He grew up, Wright says, in one of the many backwards and oppressed groups in India, part of a community that is systematically exploited and treated with contempt, injustice, and sometimes violence. The effect on his youth was to fill him with a burning desire to rise above his station in order to be able to turn the tables on those who oppressed him and his community. So he threw himself into his education and went to college committed to revolutionary ideals and Marxism. His goal was to achieve the qualifications needed to gain some kind of power and thus the means to do something in the name of justice and revenge. He was contacted in the early days in college by some Christian students and given a Bible, which he decided to read out of casual interest, though he had no respect at Christians for Christians at all. It happened that the first thing he read in the Bible was the story of Naboth, Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings 21. He was astonished to find that it was all about greed for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts, and violence against the poor, things that he himself was all too familiar with. But with even more amazement was the fact that God took Naboth's side and not only accused Ahab and Jezebel of their wrongdoing, but also took vengeance upon them. Here was a God of real justice, a God who identified the real villains, and who took real action against him. I never knew such a God existed. He exclaimed. Here was a God he could respect. A God he felt attracted to. Even though he didn't know him yet. Because such a God would understand his own thirst for justice. You know often when we talk about God coming in judgment. People in the West even Christians get a little embarrassed. Uh, well yeah maybe we'll kind of not mention that part. And yet to a world that is dealing with oppression. It's not barbaric. It's not antiquated. It's not embarrassing. It's wonderful truth. God will make all things right. There's hope. There's justice. That is the type of God I want to worship. And how you you view this is often dependent on whether you want justice done or not. So when you hear of all this, when you hear that everything you've said and done will come to account, do you find hope? Do you find discouragement? Well, we see Ahab's reaction next, and that is that he is dejected. The last part of these verses, 25 to 29, Ahab is dejected. And before we hear of Ahab's dejection, the author throws in a little parenthesis. Hey, in case you forgot, Ahab's the worst. Like the worst of the worst. He's done more bad than anyone else. So here we are. All right. God knows. God has come and said he's going to punish him. And not just punish. He's the worst. So now we're ready for the punishment. And Ahab humbles himself. He puts on sackcloth. And so God comes to Elijah again and says, have you seen this? Have you seen Ahab? How he's humbled himself? And he comes and he's going to postpone the judgment. You know, Ahab has had similar moods at the beginning and the end of this chapter. Both times he was cast down, yet for different reasons. At the beginning of the chapter, he's cast down because he can't get the vegetable garden he wants next to his second palace. Now he's cast down because he knows of his sin and the judgment that is coming. You can't judge a mood by its cover. Paul writes it this way, 2 Corinthians 7, describing two types of grief. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And when you've been caught for something and you're only upset because you're now going to be punished, that's the grief that leads to death. But when you've come to see your sin and it grieves you that you've sinned against your creator and your savior and you want to change. That's a repentance, a grief that leads to life. And so God is telling Ahab through Elijah, I've seen your humbling and it will bring change. You know, God has always wanted to show mercy to Ahab. That's why God sent Elijah in the first place. That's why he sent the famine. That's why he sent him on Mount Carmel. That's why he sent him after the battles and delivered him from two nations. All signs that should have said, Ahab, your life is astray. Come back to me. And yet Ahab would not turn. And yet now God postpones punishment due to Ahab's humility. One of the most important character traits in life is humility. God says in Isaiah 66:2. This is the one to whom I'll look. Now that's a phrase. Who is God going to look at? He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God declares in James 4, 6-10, But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You Pride looks in to ourselves and thinks we have all the resources we need. Humility bows down and looks up to God for help. Humility admits our inability and our desperate need for God's assistance. Humility ultimately looks to help through Christ. Now, notice who it did not say God would help. It does not say God will help the churchgoer. Or God will help the good Samaritan. Or God will help the faithful spouse or employer or the kind neighbor. Now hopefully you are those things. And they are good things to be. Yet you can do every single one of them and be proud about them. God exalts the humble like Ahab. And yet I wonder if some of us are going, wait, wait, hold on though. This is not right. Ahab just murdered someone to get a vegetable garden. They used their power to kill the poor so they could just get something they didn't even need. That is wicked. That's sa- he deserves punishment. And that's right. He does deserve punishment. And if you read closely, God does not remove punishment. God postpones punishment. Justice will come upon those future sons who refuse to turn from sin. Yet if they humbled themselves and repented like Ahab, then they too would be spared. In fact, God will postpone ultimate judgment on all Until his own son comes. On the cross, God's judgment was fully poured out on Jesus. And thus, no sin ever goes unpunished. Some people, when they think about God's forgiveness, they think that God just kind of arbitrarily goes, well, okay, I'll forgive you. And yet God does not arbitrarily forgive us. His forgiveness can only occur because what we deserve, the justice that is demanded, was poured out on Christ. So will justice ever be served? Yes, completely, totally, irrevocably. Every sin will completely be justly paid by the one who did it or by Jesus, the substitute who took the punishment for them. There is no sin, no sin too small that will not go unpunished. At the cross, love and justice meat back to our man from india because he earlier knew of god's justice and he loved it and yet he kept reading the bible and he came to know also of god's holiness and so christopher wright again recalls the man's word who grew to know god's holiness his justice and said the man recounted this was a serious god who meant what he said and expected the people to act accordingly He was not capricious or arbitrary like the gods of mythology, but a God of absolute purity, a God to be careful with. All this discovery was staggering to him as he read on and on. He found himself praising this God he didn't know. God, you're so just. You're so perfect. You're so holy, he would exclaim, believing this was the kind of God that answered the need of his own angry struggle. Everything seemed good. Then he came upon Isaiah 43, 1, and he came to an abrupt halt. The end of Isaiah 42 describes Israel's sin and God's just punishment. But suddenly, unexpectedly, God is talking about forgiveness and pardon and love. I couldn't take it, he said. I was attracted to that God of justice and holiness. I ran away from a God of love. But ultimately, he couldn't. It was about that time that Christian friends came and explained more about the fullness of God's justice and love on the cross. And he came at last to understand and surrender to the God he would found in the Old Testament. And his life was transformed through faith in Christ. And many people have wrestled with, how does God allow suffering and evil in this world? And while there's no perfect answer, we clearly see one thing. God enters into that suffering himself. You know, Naboth is not the only man to have false charges hurled against him that would ultimately lead to his death. We read in Matthew 25:59 through 61. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that he might they might put him to death. But they found none though many false witnesses came forward. You know, God knows the injustice and suffering of this world because Jesus came and endured it. He came to endure it, to restore his kingdom and so that all might be made right. He came to take all the injustice we've done so that if, like Ahab, we humble ourselves and turn from our sins and trust him, we can be forgiven. You know, Could you be worse than Ahab? Perhaps, but even that could be forgiven. God knew all that Ahab did and he brought forgiveness. Like Ahab, the judgment will then not go on us, but on his son. It will pass over us and go on his son. So won't you trust Christ for his justice in your suffering? Won't you humble yourself and seek his mercy for the injustices you have done and delight in him showing you mercy? Let's pray. O Lord, We need you. We cry out for justice when sinned against. And we cry out for mercy when we are the perpetrators. So, Lord, we bring both of those to you. We cry out to you to bring justice about. And we cry out to you, have mercy on us, Lord. We have sinned, and yet you have made a way through your Son that punishment may be passed over from us and on you so that all things will be punished and made right. Thank you for your perfect character, just, holy, loving, long-suffering, patient, and on and on. We praise and adore you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.